0: This interview is a replay of a live one that I did at the Nebraska Healthcare Convention in Lincoln, Nebraska for their Innovation Summit in 2022. I interviewed Dr. Gregory Johnson. He's the Chief Medical Officer at Good Samaritan Society. This conversation starts off talking about why he was invited and what he spoke about, but then we get into some, in my opinion, we get into what's really interesting about how long-term care has changed him. We talk about politics. We talk about maybe some controversial topics for some people maybe even inside of his team but what an amazing human conversation with an amazing human leader in our long-term care industry i hope you enjoy this chat with dr johnson as much as i did this episode was brought to you by experience.care the long-term care ehr backed by guarantees Visit experience.care forward slash guarantee to get your free profitability consultation today. All right. Welcome back to LTC Heroes Live by Experience Care. My name is Peter Murphy-Lewis. I'm your host. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Gregory Johnson. He's the Chief Medical Officer at Good Samaritan Society. Dr. Johnson, welcome to the program. Glad to be here. So, Dr. Johnson, tell me
1: what brought you to the Nebraska Convention. I am headquartered in Sioux Falls and they asked me to come down and talk about the, the forbidden conversation in healthcare. And I didn't even know what it was about, but I said, I'd be happy, <laughs> happy, to, happy to come be that. So it's been great. And what was the forbidden topics inside of that talk? We talked about accountability and a little more specifically about crucial accountability as a, as a book. I think the reason that it was fun and exciting, even though the book is probably a cornerstone of leadership, is just where, where long term care is right now. A lot of scarcity, a lot of stress. And so how do we deal with how do we deal with that? How do we deal with accountability in the context of stress?
0: Can you break that down? I love talking about accountability in almost any sector. Like if my wife said, Hey, I want to talk about accountability, I'd be like, Oh yeah, this is cool. Yeah. I like it. Or my dad who works in banking break it down to me. What, when you talk about accountability, what are you thinking of?
1: Wow. Big question. I think that the first things that come to mind are, are maybe what I, I don't think of or where I'd say it's not this, or maybe this is a, a wrong use of it. When we, sometimes when we run into a wall, we're like, well, they know now this is just about accountability. We just need to hold some people accountable. And I, and I think that coming from a place where we're like, Can we believe that everybody's doing the best they can with what they have? Or can we suspend for a moment our own story about why what happened happened and try to understand maybe what's at the root of that? So for us today, when we talked about Uh accountability, some of it was defining what it is, what our expectation was that didn't get met, but then later on digging into all the different ways we can get at the root of how the other party acting didn't fulfill. And...
0: What were, I guess I want to ask you, I want want to go into that workshop. What were the conversation or what were the topics that came up or the subtopics? Explore those with me.
1: First topic would just be, is this worthy of a crucial accountability conversation? Are we going to, are we going to really sit down and talk about this? I think most of the time when it's keeping us up at night and when we're feeling hostile toward the other person, the answer is Yes. In fact, I don't know how many times I think it's a great idea to not have the conversation. If we're having a bad day and I walk into the chip on my shoulder, maybe that's where I'm just going like to let that one go. When to have the conversation, when you're going to have the conversation, how do you get right on the inside for you? A lot of times if we're leaders and we're having that conversation, we probably have the advantage of being a little higher in the pecking order. So I think it's incumbent upon us to be considerate, manage ourselves into a spot, and then to consider the other person and what we need to do for them to help them feel respected that we have a shared purpose and and to generally feel safe when we Mm -hmm. go into the conversation, the moment itself, when we present, wow, this is what I expected. This is what I saw. Can you tell me about that? Looking into why we're maybe why they weren't willing or able to do what we needed and then establishing kind of a commitment. But I, I feel like what we got at, and again, why, why I can be so excited about something that maybe sounds a little bit formulaic is, I think at its root is people out there just trying to get their needs met. And there's just a lot of conflict right now. Mm. Like the world is world is really strained and everything feels really thin and it feels like there's not enough to go around. And I think those are the moments where sometimes people aren't either the best versions of themselves or delivering on everyone's expectations.
0: Generally in the podcast, we go
1: right into your initiation
0: story, but I could tell that you just came out of workshop. And. Jaylene told me to throw some hard questions at you. So I, and I didn't get to go to your workshop. So appreciate you being patient with me. I've read through your bio. I'm always interested in the formal track of geriatrics because a lot, the majority of people that I meet in long term care don't go that track. Yeah. Usually long term care finds them, and that might be your case. Can you tell me a little bit how you got into long term care?
1: I was in family medicine residency, and there's a leader in the field. He's just recently retired. His name is David Brechtelsbauer. He's just kind of an icon among geriatricians. And he was in the residency program that I went to for family medicine, took me under his wing. So that was a piece of it, I think a piece of how big family medicine was. I felt like I needed to focus. But then once I started walking toward long-term care, I never turned back. It's, a, it's an incredible population of people, both on the, on the patient slash resident side an incredible population of people who give back care. I think at its core, it's very, very team-oriented. By the time somebody comes our way in long-term care, they have lots of problems. So mm-hmm. it's, always a, it's always a group sport when we're sitting around the table trying to help. And the people come with stories. They come with a, a lifetime of stories. So I think those are the things that usually make it pop for me.
0: I believe it was, I might be misquoting him, but I believe it Dr. Mike Wasserman. You've probably mm-hmm. heard of and ran across him in the circuit. I think he told me that his, and when he was in med school, they tried to dissuade him from going into geriatrics. And they told him how much less money he was going to make, that it wasn't fulfilling, that it was going to be way harder. It sounds like yours, you had someone with a mentor who
1: inspired. He did. And I, I think that he never told, told me anything about compensation. It's, uh, it's, it's been just <laughs> fine. But on the other front around fulfillment, it is profoundly fulfilling. I think that what we get to do in geriatrics is we sit down with somebody and can have real earnest conversations, whether it's on the aggressive care front, on the rehab, I just got out of the hospital front, or on the end of life front or anywhere in between. I really, really get to say, I don't know what you want. What do you want? I, I think that in geriatrics, we have sometimes the opportunity to say, I understand what the guidelines are from the American Heart Association. But you've, you've lived your life, you know what you want and what you don't, and let me tell you what the benefits are of those guidelines, and then you tell me if that's what you want to do. And that has just been an incredible part of my practice, always purveyor of options and then helping somebody like really live out what they want for life.
0: I find that certain professions or the formation of becoming that professional changes not only you know, the way that you approach that work, but who you are outside that, those walls. My best friend that I was joking with before we hit record was a trained attorney. And he was my best friend for 10 years before he's an attorney. And now he's fallen on the dark side for the last four years. And I always bully him about how his mindset is horrible. And obviously I'm exaggerating, right? But it's helped him in many different facets of his life and frame the way that he approaches life differently now. Is that the same for you? you? The way that you approach, the way that you ask questions, I hadn't heard it described in that way. And when you said it, I'm like, oh, that makes so much sense. That's the difference between post-acute and acute asking that question, right? Has it changed the way that you are outside of the office? Oh, wow,
1: that, that, that's an incredible question. And no one's ever asked that to me, but absolutely. We have a not-for-profit that my wife runs. Oh, we adopted kids went into leadership. There's just all I look back at all the complexities of life. And I think, absolutely, that's how we, that's how we look at things. We look at like, so to start with the elderly, but I want you to reach your potential. I want to unlock everything you want to unlock. And I want you to be everything you want to be. And all of those other experiences, it's, it's always been about unlocking human potential and say, wow, so unlocking human potential do you feel like that's what you're doing when you're talking to somebody about dying and about the end of life? If what they want is to go fishing one more time on Lake Wall, then yes, that's absolutely what I'm doing. And so in fact, arguably, when people are facing the end of life, sometimes they are more kind of more literal and more clear on exactly what they do want than at any other time in life. So yes, yes, yes.
0: Thank you for sharing that. When you were talking about maybe your last wish is to go fishing, it reminded me about four or five months ago, I interviewed Dr. David Gifford of ACA. I'm pretty sure it was him. He says, you know, I just can't convince my dad to not go chop wood barefoot and he gets all cut up and his feet hurt, but that's what he wants to do. And I'm like, oh, it's, it is just a different approach.
1: I think geriatrics is great for that. And I don't know why I'd have to think through that one. But that sounds like everyone, I know Dr. Gifford, it sounds like every one of my geriatrics colleagues, because I think it. there's a certain point where maybe this is part of the answer. But if you had some person in their adolescence want to make a poor healthcare decision, we probably would be like, no, you can't do that. And for maybe for good reason. But by the time somebody is well experienced in the ways of life and they say, you know what, I just want to eat Cheetos every day. I'm like, it's probably not the best source of nutrition, but if that's what you want, that's what we're going to do. And that liberty is alive and well in geriatrics. And I, I think sometimes it, it plays out. It's harder to play that out in, in younger classes.
0: I want to ask you: is there, do you have a story, maybe back when you decided that you were going to go into geriatrics or a specific resident, or maybe it was that mentor that, you hold close to your heart and says you know like this marked there's a before and after moment for me i interview a lot of frontline caregivers and there's usually a moment where like you know what i made a difference in this person's life and i realized i was a lifer or they confirmed i made the right decision
1: i'm just going to give you what came to mind i don't know if this is all rainbows but there was a moment where there was a man who had i'll say she was 95 i remember her and she had advanced dementia and had been in the nursing home for years and years and she would get dehydrated because she just didn't think we would offer her water she wouldn't drink water and then she would go to the hospital and then you know ultimately he wanted her to be given ivs constantly in the nursing home wanted her to have an IV, you know bag IV fluid every day and i think we sat down with him and the son that is and I explained to him this is part and parcel this is of her disease and its course and I think when when I finally helped him connect the dots on it and he realized that sometimes being less aggressive with care is the right thing so I maybe why that story came to mind it, I think it's I think it's about what we get to do we get to connect with people it's maybe back to that previous point around helping people get what they need and get what they want. In this case, it was helping him see what he really wanted. It was a critical moment. I felt like I brought something to the table. Sometimes in later years of life, we're not fixing things always. Can't make it brand new again. Sometimes the way we fix things is we help line up people's expectations and understanding what's available. And it was a critical moment for me professionally.
0: Thank you for sharing. I want to ask you, I want to get into kind of the minutiae of your day and what is your favorite part of the day in your work at Good Sam or maybe it's your drive, maybe it's a meeting, maybe it's talking to a teammate, maybe it's getting into
1: policy. I think that there are two favorites. One of them has been interacting with the likes of Dr. Gifford that you mentioned. So the professional, the trade organization that supports uh, nursing homes, ACA. I'm sure you're well aware. My interactions with them and the ability to have a say through that organization in how policy goes. My wife and I are very different people. She's the starfish picking up one at a time. And I've always wanted to be the end loader guy. And I feel like we have so much, so much to change, so much to influence in the public policy realm as it relates to senior care. So, any chance I get to be there with that organization, I have an opportunity at least weekly to sit with those folks who sit right with the head of Department of Health and Human Services, Senator Mansion, and so on and so forth. So those are highlights. I think I also get a chance to speak with our leaders. I do these, I call them five-star calls. I um, sit down with the leadership of our five-star facilities, and I'm like, hey, what's the special sauce? What are you guys doing? Like, I want to make everybody a five star. So I had this, this brainchild. I'm like, yeah, if I sit down with all of them, I'm going to hear a common thread. And I'm like, hey, we got this tool that our that my people put together. You got, you got, you guys like that tool. Like, you know, we're getting your dad in a different way. And, you know, this isn't going to end well.
0: Uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm waiting for
1: what there's no special sauce.
0: I want to pause real briefly just to thank you for listening to LTC Heroes. I want to tell you what we've been doing in the last couple of months. I was honored to be invited to a couple of different conventions with the platform LTC Heroes, one of those being Georgia Healthcare Association, Missouri Healthcare Association, and also HIMSS 22. And what we've been doing there, we've been interviewing executives like yourselves about the tools and success that they have had in their organizations and trying to build those out into tools that would be helpful for the entire industry. So I would encourage you to go over to ltcheroes.com forward slash community. Join our private community where we are building these conversations out into tools that everyone else could use. If you go to a local convention in your state or at the national level that you think LTC Heroes could collaborate with and highlight what you all are doing, please reach out to me at Peter at LTC Heroes. Once again, thanks for listening,
1: participating, and join us in the community. There's no special sauce? No, there's not exactly a special sauce, except there is kind of an inspiring special sauce. And That is that every one of those facilities has incredible longevity in their leaders. And those are the people who, I mean, if I were going to tell you after having sat down with so many of these five stars, what the special sauce is, it is the administrator. It's the director of nursing. It's their relationship and how they work together as just consummate leaders and then the culture that they establish in the building. And I think just people helping lift other people up, who those people are, those are big people. When I'm on a WebEx, it's been especially WebEx through the the pandemic. When I'm on a WebEx with those people, I'm like, I know why you're building some five-star. Just incredible people doing the work, inspiring their staff, setting a culture for what good care is and what loving care is.
0: You were introduced to me as being someone who feels comfortable pushing the envelope and having a yeah. different opinion once in a while i often ask leaders what's the bad advice that you hear in our industry i want to ask you what do you hear that you just like that no this is wrong we need to we need to kill this dinosaur or kill this sacred cow it's time for us to grow in long term
1: care that's not a hard question so in my role i have a lot of exposure to the survey process So, for those unfamiliar, probably everyone on this call or on this podcast would be, but those who aren't, the federal government surveys facilities on a yearly basis at least. And that determines star rating, but also many, many expensive penalties. I think that when you listen to newscasts throughout the pandemic and after, there's always this sense that if we just regulate harder or if we apply more scrutiny, we will raise the bar and it will help everyone. And I guess I can say, you know, because I I look at our benchmarks and not ours, but I compare to them nationally that the number of serious tags, the scope and severity of tags over the last 10 years is unchanged. It's unchanged. Multiple administrations, multiple tightening the screws, multiple going harder at it. Millions and millions, literally millions and millions of dollars per organization in civil monetary penalties. And you just frankly can't legislate Righteousness you can't to steal from martin luther king, you can't you can't make a law that will help people deliver the best care, and i I'm not saying that we take our eyes off of it, but I think that the regulatory burden related to this is not driving excellence. It's distracting, it's punitive, and it actually has driven a culture, our organization on the hospital side. I'm sorry, I'm going a little bit of a different direction, but our organization, on the hospital side. Is pursuing high reliability science. High reliability organizations are all over the place in the hospital and clinic world. And we're bringing that to long term care. And some of that work is decreasing power distance. It's okay for me to question my boss. It's that same thing that the hospital does. We're like, are you sure, Surgeon X, that this is the right leg we're supposed to cut off? I'm not sure that, you know, when we are, when we decrease that power distance and when we also can admit. Errors and we can see near misses, and when we can be transparent and when we can realize that outcomes, good or bad, or multifactorial, all of that is a struggle in the face of the survey culture, which is punitive. It's who did it and who are we going to fire and who are we going to put on leave and how much are you going to get charged. It is not driving the transparency and it's not driving the excellence that it should. It's driving really the opposite in terms of a culture. And I, I think that's just it would be monumental to reform the system. You
0: use more or less the language before we hit record that the system's broken. And this comes up in the podcast over and over with smart leaders like yourself. And I
1: always ask, are you optimistic? I think that that's deep, man. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Probably because everything just rushed in. I think that we have the healthcare system in the United States in general has very much of a capitalistic bent. Capitalism doesn't necessarily—it's not just a close friend of equity. I mean, capitalism. I'm not suggesting that we change our overall government, but at least the way it's set up today. Even if the government is one of the biggest parts of our book of business, any in any business, it still drives money, and that money drives those. Those are perverse incentives, and so. To get to a space where I could be optimistic, we have to go back to how we pay for healthcare. Today, we pay for healthcare, and we've been saying this for 10 or 15 years, but we pay for healthcare transactionally, and we pay for it piecemeal. And as a physician, I was always frustrated that even if I knew what was right for the patient, if it wasn't on the menu, so to speak, I can't get it for you. I could get something three times more expensive. It would be three times less effective but something really cheap I can't get for you. And I think that's really core, is that we have a system that pays for what it pays for, and it also pays for things that if I were a businessman, I would go after those things. And then that's that's how it runs. And so when we we talk about payment reform, moving towards something like capitation or like PACE programs, those are the types of settings where you kind of are giving me a checkbook and saying, you do the right thing for Myrtle. And and there are good people in the industry who want that. And while you could never leave it completely unregulated, we could at least take down the barriers that drive the opposite behavior.
0: Why do you think we haven't moved faster in that direction? I've had a couple people from PACE program on here. And generally speaking, those types of more, those alternative models are respected across the board. Is it Government is it our perception from society? Why can't we move the system that
1: way? Pace programs, pace programs in particular, there are a lot of work to set up, and so I I think that there's that that it's complex. If it's about capitation, I would say it's it's really almost just cultural at this point. The two or three times that I've been in a seat to influence an organization toward that. It's almost like it just doesn't register, been being paid per click for so long that the economics of saying, I'll write you the check at the beginning of the year, our systems kind of frankly aren't set up for it. Medicare Advantage is, in a sense, kind of that, but Medicare Advantage owned by an insurance company is probably a little different than Medicare Advantage owned by a healthcare provider. So a lot of provider owned health plans now. And I think those are moving in the right direction. But the reason that doesn't spread is how fierce the competition is in markets. Like If you go into a fill-in-the-blank big insurance company market that has like so much penetration, very hard to compete in that space.
0: You mentioned that you love to talk about reform, that you're passionate about reform. I don't think I've ever had anyone on the podcast who gives me that introduction. Tell me why you're passionate and then break it down. Keep it simple for a marketer, a podcaster, a CNA. And why we should pay attention to
1: it. So, I, I think that I've related this in this fashion before, just a little bit to give some color to like the brokenness. But today, there is a payment method that drives behavior. And the payment method that Medicare has is oftentimes mirrored by commercial payers. So, we'll just talk about Medicare. And Medicare has 17 different payment methodologies, they have a payment methodology for hospital. Payment methodology for nursing home, home health, hospice, inpatient rehab, long term acute care hospitals, and so on and so forth, dialysis units. And each of those really isn't set up to take care of you forever. It's set up to take care of you when you're in that place and therefore kind of transactional. And people say, well, how is this transactional thing a problem? It's a problem because it really comes down to passing the buck. And so if I gave an example and said, okay, there's somebody who has a hip fracture. And the person has a hip fracture. You go into the hospital. If I am a hospital, I get paid a lump sum, and we have a name for it. But I get paid about ten thousand dollars. And whether you're there, and and a long time ago, the government said, well, that would be good because if we pay them the same amount no matter what, it'll help them. It'll keep them accountable to themselves. It'll help them stay efficient. But what it really did was it made the hospital say, wow, if I get paid ten thousand no matter what, well, maybe I should just try to like. Move them on through here. And I, I'm not saying that hospitals are evil. It's, it, there was no one person that ever sat in a room. It was just the economic pressure over time drove people to make hospitals stay shorter and shorter. Now I discharge this gentleman who had the hip fracture from the hospital, and maybe I do it a day or two. Like I'm right on the edge. I'm like, it's okay because I'm going to send him to a nursing home. And the nursing home also gets paid. And there's some fussiness about how we get paid. But at day 20, everybody magically gets well because now they have a copay. Maybe they weren't ready when they left the hospital, and maybe they're now not ready when they leave the nursing home, but we originate a new set of payment. And when the hospital sent them out, perhaps prematurely, kind of pushed that risk off on the nursing home, the nursing home were like, "Wow, well, we're on day 20, the family doesn't want to pay the copay. Now that risk goes on to home health and, and so on and so forth down the line. And if the person still isn't well, then the whole cycle starts over again and so at each moment we pass things on down the line and that is how sectioned off each part of illness and recovery is and so my life changing moment was when i visited a system out in new york who'd been capitated for 15 years and so they there were 17 payers in that market and this health system was so good at managing care that they white labeled that 14 of the 17 payers gave all their care management over to this health system. And they, again, so for those not super familiar with capitation, you get the check at the beginning of the year, kind of. And so I always just say it like this, they have a pot of money. They literally have a pot of money. And when somebody comes in to their system, they interview them, they figure out what their risk factors are. like. She has pet dander in her home and she has COPD, and it sounds like she needs an exterminator. Like, wait, these aren't medical things, are there? No, like they're social things, but that is where we're not doing our job. And so they have this needs assessment. At the end of the needs assessment, there's like three or four red flags, and they, I saw them and they would just click, and these red flags would shoot right over. It would dispatch a mover and dispatch an exterminator. And like, how is the exterminator being paid for? They just took it out of the pot of money. And the COPD patient who was in, the emergency department had thousands and thousands of dollars a pop again and again, they just bought her an air conditioner so that she didn't have to have the windows open all the time. They bought her an air conditioner out of the pot. And I think that is, that is the thing is that when you are not now just responsible for the hospital stay, but you're asking yourself, what can I do? That's the right thing for her in any setting. You make rational decisions that are often, they're way better for the patient and they're, they're more economical, more sustainable for our society. And the pot, they also dipped into the pot and they're like, you know, let's do some research in this neighborhood. Nobody has access to fresh fruits and vegetables. Where does everybody shop? They shop in a bodega, a convenience store. And so they like did a study and they showed like what got emptied off the shelves: massive amounts of refined carbohydrates. You know, like pre at the beginning of the day versus post at the end of the day, we got to do something. So they set up fresh fruits and vegetable stands in the neighborhood and they taught classes. Sounds like pie in the sky, right? But I, I think that this is healthcare in the United States. Healthcare is about chronic disease and it's about lifestyle and it's about social interventions and it's about the things that we need to do for people in their homes and in their community. It's not necessarily what needs to be done. In the hospital or in the nursing home, that probably means we didn't do it soon enough.
0: I love the answer to reform because you made me interested. I told you that whatever you're passionate about, (laughs) I was going to get interested in. I want to know when you developed that passion for reform because you did a great job of explaining it to me. So I I did want to know: Did it come with practice? Come at school? Did it come after you saw the system was broken?
1: So before I visited this um, system in New York. We were in the largest ACO in the United States and similar ACOs, we more or less get told about how much we can spend on a patient. It's not quite that, that bad, but similar. And we know where we're at. And so we we're kind of slicing and dicing the data and the things that people kept coming into the hospital for and kept, that kept them from having good health and wellness and meeting their human potential the same things again and again. It's not that somebody never gave them the right med or never gave them the right advice or never gave them a taxi voucher. Like those are the little band-aids that we throw. And I think I got kind of discouraged with how hard we tried to help people. Sometimes they didn't advantage themselves with the decisions they made either, but they also sometimes didn't understand. And I got kind of low. <laughs> With that. Mm -hmm. And I think that it was after it was after that valley that I visited New York. And I was like, see, we can do this. And I think that, you know, when you look at spending one out of every five dollars in the United States on healthcare or more, it's a really, really big chunk of money.
0: Dr. Johnson, I'm gonna wrap this up with a personal question. I feel your energy and your awareness makes for a great, great Kind of reflection of what we've gone through with the pandemic. What have you learned about yourself in the last three years as a leader, the way that you handled the pandemic, the way that you helped make decisions, the way that it affected you emotionally, spiritually, or physically?
1: I think that we, we have learned that we need to go out and see and understand we were isolated or separated by distance. Our system's in 22 states. And that's already hard. So we saw them less. Circumstances changed through the pandemic and with regulation. And I think that, you know, you always think as a leader that that maybe you have objectivity and it's an old lesson, but I think until you go out and see and understand the shoes that people are walking in and understand what they're facing. I think the comment that I made earlier about Someone posed a question when I was disappointed in a situation and probably in a person and said, don't you think that person's doing the best they can with what they have? Can you believe that for a minute? So, you know, I think a belief in the good of human beings first, I think we saw that in spades during the pandemic, right? Just people are our frontline staff who stayed the long nights and worked the extra shift and. When half the workers, half the staff were out because of COVID, they're like, Well, somebody's gotta be here because somebody needs to take care of our residents, but frankly, our loved ones. So I don't know, like that was kind of circuitous, but I think probably a, a teeny bit of teeny bit of guilt or something that but a little bit of redemption too, like a teeny bit of guilt that I I didn't have as deep a belief and just kind of arising up and saying, People are good. People are just good. And we need to believe that. And that's what we need to spread.
0: Dr. Johnson, thank you so much for joining me at LTC Heroes. It's great to meet you at Nebraska and hopefully meet you back next year. Thanks. All right. Confession time. Yes, I host the LTC Heroes podcast. And hopefully you know that by now, but I can't take all the credit. Jason Long, the CEO of Experience Care, told me two years ago when we started this show that this new audio platform had to create value for everyone. Whether you're a client of Experience Care's electronic health care records or not. He then encouraged me to become a CNA to really help LTC Heroes resonate with caregivers and leaders. And between me and you, he really knew what he was talking about. LTC Heroes has been invited to almost 10 conventions this year alone to finally shine a light on what leaders like you have been doing for decades. It's that sort of knowledge in the industry that really makes me appreciate experience care, which has developed customizable and intuitive EHR that makes clinical, financial, and billing processes more efficient and accurate. It transforms workflows into something that makes sense so you can focus on what really matters. Caring about your residents, the software is used by assisted living SNFs and CCRCs, big and small facilities alike. Countless users have reached out and shared with me that it's really effective in helping to improve their outcomes. I can honestly say that I know my parents would be proud to learn that I work at a place like Experience Care. Visit ltcheroes.com to join our Facebook group for nurses and our exclusive LinkedIn group for LTC owners. Visit ltcheroes.com for your exclusive access today. This episode was brought to you by experience.care, the long-term care EHR backed by guarantees. Visit experience.care forward slash guarantee to get your free profitability consultation today.